Oh, yes. Welcome back. Welcome back to the Late Night Thoughts Observatorium over here at Real Deal Media's finest podcast, Ionospheres out there. Same your Late Night Thought host, presenting an incredible show tonight. This is the Far Out podcast that talks about everything and nothing at all here as I welcome an incredible author named Neil Sanders, who I discovered years ago, believe it or not, believe it or not, uh, he wrote an incredible book that is more prevalent today than probably it was years back when we first got together. He's the author of a book called Now is the Only Time That Is Real, one of the most crucial books I've read in quite some time about Charles Manson, the Manson family, and the entire environment of that infamous time in history in American culture, which we're going to be getting into. He's also the host of a, a wonderful podcast. If you haven't heard it, you haven't watched it, you haven't uh, dared get into it, it's called Some Dare Call It Conspiracy, an incredible podcast. So I want to welcome to the first time here, Late Night Thoughts, uh, someone who uh, is will blow your mind tonight, and that's the one and only author and podcast host, Neil Sanders. Hi, Neil. Uh, Thank you very much for inviting me on, mate. It is so finally great to have you on. I know it, the time difference has always been a challenge, but you know, there really is no time and there's no relevancy than it is now, which is why <laughs> we brought you on, because you want to talk about historical things happening right now. The One of the last few of the Manson family followers who's in prison, Leslie Van Houten, well, not only was she up for parole, but she just got granted parole over there in California. And I said, oh, my God, what does Neil Sanders think about this? <laughs> Historical, well, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, well, the thing is, we're going to have to wait and see. Now, there are going to be some people that basically just think, no, there's no way she should ever be let out. And and that might that might even extend to the sort of people that get the final say in this. This isn't the first time that she's um, been up for parole. It's not even the first time she's been granted parole. This is the fifth time that uh, she's been granted parole. And every time before, it's been refused at the final um uh, really final, yeah yeah i mean strangely leslie was actually originally she was um sort of let out um for about two years and she she did some things like she went to the oscars one year uh, and stuff like that so she went after the crimes were committed she was basically her trial was sort of delayed for a period and uh, there was a period where she was okay. free and then she was basically re- okay. re- sort of incarcerated so but sure. she's what she's 73 now i think she was 19 when the, the crime happened um right it's um, now it, it very much depends on, on what, what you sort of think. What we're going to be getting into here tonight, we're going to go on a, a real safari back in the time, probably starting in, you know, the lead up to 1968, which they say killed the, the flower power movement. And then we'll kind of circle around to where we are today with Leslie uh, Hooten, who is I didn't even know went to the Oscars. I mean, she's not the, uh, the, the girl that accepted the Oscar for Marlon Brando, is she? No, no, that would be, yeah. <laughs> okay. that, would be <laughs> that would have been disturbing, huh? Yeah, no, no, it wasn't, it wasn't quite as, uh, as, as much as that. <laughs> so let's get into this, Neil, because you're one of the most fascinating guests I've had on my shows. And if you don't know, I had uh, last time Neil and I uh, we, we we spoke to each other was probably 2017 when I brought him on my old show of Truth Be Told over there in Hollywood, and uh, Neil's story and Neil's version of it, his narrative has never resonated to me like before when I would hear the Manson story until I heard Neil's version of it. So let's get into this, Neil, and work our way to present day because you have 1968, you have Charles Manson who freaked out the entire nation Mm -hmm. and killed 
Sharon Tate, responsible for it, and sat in prison for many decades, like uh, the, the most recent parole. So I'm going to give you the floor. Well, I mean, where, where do you want to start? I mean, in regards to why, why is well, that in prison? So, well, so yeah, the, base, the, the, the the official story is Charles Manson was a, uh, had a group of, um, yeah, a group of uh, rejects, flower power people, and they're responsible for killing the murders uh, yeah. or committing the murders of Sharon Tate. Yeah, basically, Charles Manson was sort of like a bit of, bit of a career criminal. Like, he was born into circumstances that weren't too sort of advantageous for him. His, his mother was, um, we could describe her as a bit of a good time girl. She wasn't terribly responsible. Um, there are some stories that are not true, but but sort of give an impression. Like, there's, there's a very famous story that she tried to swap him for a pitcher of beer when he was quite young. Um, and like when he was literally a, a, a baby or a toddler. Uh, but I don't think that that's actually true. I think that was just sort of fabricated to, to, to show that she wasn't as responsible a parent as she might be. But to, in, in her defense, she was very, very young. And she was a bit of like a bit like a hippie before the hippies, really. That, that's how Charlie certainly uh, described her. Um, and she ended up going to prison for um, uh, trying to knock people out with, by stealing from them by knocking them out with antique coke bottles, which is a bit of a you know unusual thing to do. Well, you know, it's uh, it's uh, yeah. Like, so anyway, Charlie basically didn't really have the sort of best of time. He was in and out of various sort of institutions. Like he did. Apparently, he was a little sod when he was a kid as well. This story is like basically him stealing all the, the toys from the local children and collecting them all together. This was at Christmas time, uh, and he set fire to them all, basically. So he broke into people's houses, stole their Christmas gifts, and set them on fire. Um, because essentially, people were picking on him. There was There's also stories that one of his relatives, because he was sent to, to live with various aunts and uncles and grandparents and, and such like that, uh, who were varying degrees of sort of hillbillies and stuff like that and one time to, to toughen him up he sent him to church wearing a dress so that um it, basically just to force him to get into right. fight to get used to fighting really so sort of boy names do type sort of thing um and so so you know he, did, he didn't have the, the best of upbringing was in and out of places like he, he was in boys town for for a time uh and in in certain other um prisons essentially what what he would he was initially doing was Things like stealing cars. He, he was a bit of a petty criminal. He wasn't really that that sort of skillful. He he, he stole some cars and um, at the behest of his wife at the time um, took um, took them across state and got caught doing that. And uh, so you know, and then later on he, he cashed a check that it was turned out to be stolen. Uh, and uh, he ended up in prison essentially. And to be quite honest, prison turned out to be the making of of Charlie in in a, in a number of ways. Like one, he, he sorted himself out mentally. Um, by which I mean, and this is going to sound quite strange, uh, uh, and I personally wouldn't recommend it, but it seems to help him out. He, he got very interested in Scientology. Like, he, he knew a chap called Lainey Aramia, and Lainey Aramia claimed to have been trained by L. Ron Hubbard. This turned out not to be true. But anyway, he did actually sort of know his, his stuff Scientology-wise, and he, he, he basically taught Charles Manson a load of Scientology tricks. So... Like a lot of people might be familiar with Charles Manson. They might have seen him in, in documentaries and stuff like that. And someone will ask a question like, who are you? And he'll go, who are you? So well, what's your name? Well, what's your name? And there's also <laughs> sort of stories of him basically being able to sort of, you know, guards in prison would pick on him and say, oh, well, you, you, you know, you're in here forever. And it's like, I'm, I'm everywhere I am. I Like, you know, that's that's sort of what, you know, coming to now or now is the only thing that's real. It's, it's the concept that basically he was perfectly happy in himself. And if you sort of look at some of the Scientology TR routines, like training routines, things like bull baiting, for example, is learning to take a load of abuse off people. 
and the, it, this famous footage or uh, famous descriptions of Charles Manson making lots of different faces and putting his hands up against other people's hands and making them follow him around and doing sort of weird dances and things like this. And these are all taken from Scientology type. Uh, well, they're, they're Scientology training rituals that basically they're there to to, to the, the, what they say is come to now basically so it's the idea of being completely happy in the moment and being, being completely contented with, with with yourself and you know for for one of a it, it seems to, to help with with charlie he, he credits it with with solving his depression and uh, and basically you know making him making him into a a, a sort of full person really um when, he, when he's in prison he meets several people who are quite uh, influential one, one of the people that he meets um is um uh, creepy carpus now creepy carpus was his cellmate and he was um a member of the mar barker gang the mar barker gang was sort of a robbery gang and um he, he was he was one of their members he got caught and he was um in prison with charlie and he was influential in, in a number of ways one he sort of taught him a few chops on guitar uh charlie previously learned uh, i think it was at boys town but i may be, be wrong about that um, but he previously learned um, off a priest, uh, and he'd also learned to, to box at this particular establishment as well when he was younger. So he was pretty tasty with his hands, was Charlie. But anyway, Cooper Carpus not only taught him to um, um, uh, to uh, improve his guitar, but he also put him in uh, contact with certain mobsters, including apparently Mickey Cohen. And Charlie had already cultivated a very brief but quite influential um, relationship with um, oh, what was he called? The, the Prime Minister of uh of crime frank frank costello um who was in the same prison as him for, for a brief time now what, what's interesting is that when charlie meets frank costello all of a sudden he, he seems to sort of like turn over a new leaf fly right and he goes on this uh, mechanics course and this mechanics course is, is basically like seemingly he's gonna get like a viable trade when he when he gets out what he's actually learning to do is how to start cars without keys and stuff <laughs> and um, when he gets out oh, he wow yeah, well, he does two things. He becomes an even more prolific um, uh, car thief, and he's moving around in sort of Texas and stuff like that. But he also starts pimping out um, girls uh, in Laredo, Texas, and later uh, at Three Star Entertainment in Hollywood with a gentleman called Tony Cassini. And Tony Cassini was also uh, similar to Mickey Cohen and um, Frank Costello. Uh, was also in the mafia, and so the. Charles Manson wasn't in the mafia by any stretch of the imagination, but he was a criminal that had certain activities uh, which were moving stolen cars, um, selling drugs and uh, pimping out girls that all basically sort of intertwined with certain elements of the mafia. Um, and he, he basically, it, we're skipping right ahead now, but there's a suggestion that basically uh, the Lambiancas were in debt to Frankie Carbo, who's another incredibly influential mobster that, that Charlie just so happened to claim to know. So, um, so although basically the kind of the story would be that um, he's just thought sort of this random guy that sort of learned bits and bobs in prison. He apparently took a massive amount from the book How to Win Friends and Influence People. It looks like he's actually a bit more of a sort of sort of fell into career criminality really, and then met a few people that were very very sort of influential and helpful. Because like when he gets out in the when he gets out in the sixties, just before he meets all the the people that would come to become his circle of followers um he he's offered jobs through the um creepy carpus connection to mafia owned um music clubs in san francisco and los angeles and stuff like that and that's via the influence of mickey cohen because mickey cohen and mafia were, were very much in control of the entertainment business by that point so all these things are sort of driving him to um 
to be to be the person that he is. And like, so one of the things that is, is massively overlooked by quite a lot of people when looking at the Manson case, because they want it to be sort of hippie court leader and that sort of thing, is the fact that he was in there with pimps and he was, so he was in prison with pimps and he very much respected pimps. And then he went into pimping himself, first transporting girls down in Texas and then into pimping um, in, um, in Hollywood as well. And now obviously one of the things that Charlie's is known for uh, without skipping ahead too much is having this, this sort of cadre of, of young girls that followed him around and seemed to sort of worship the ground that he he walked on and the, the mainstream sort of accusation is that it, they had some sort of like religious sort of like you know desire for him that they they felt that he was you know the leader of their cult basically they, they admired him for that when actually if you look at it in a sort of far more sort of pragmatical sensible sort of explanation is that oh he's he's a pimp and they're being pimped out or at the very least using similar sort of um techniques like do you know what i mean sort of manipulation and coercion techniques to get these people right un under the thumb really i don't know if you've like there's a very good book called um, pimp by iceberg slim uh, and that sort of explains uh explains you know, the, the, the reaction between them but if you sort of listen to the way that they, they talk about slim in this book it's not dissimilar to some of the things that some of the girls have said about um charlie basically Interesting. So just to um, paint the picture of where we are now. So we have a young Charles Manson who, who for all intents purposes, um, he had a mother that was that could have been a, a, a prostitute, a hustler, just very shady and kind of grew up in the system and in and out of prisons, etc. So was really raised on a criminal mind. Now, as he's now established approaching his you know, 30s, he's now finds himself in the L.A. Basin over there in uh, L.A., Hollywood, mm -hmm. Southern California, and has kind of a clientele, isn't really, he's more or less like what, what a, a food merchant or a merchant in general was for mafias. Mm -hmm. He was a household name in that fixture. So now he's in L.A. Now you have a huge booming music scene. Um, you have Hollywood's Alive. You have the British Invasion. You have um, the San Francisco scenes booming. And now you have Charles Manson in L.A. and I would maybe Laurel Canyon area. You want to take it from there, uh, Neil? I think first the first place he went was to, to hate Ashbury because that's where obviously all the sort of the, the oh right 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 right. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's right. The first um, just prior to him being released uh, from I think it was Terminal Island was the, the last prison that he was in. Uh, just prior to being released from there, he was visited by a really high-priced lawyer, and this has never really been explained by anybody. But this this lawyer. His usual clientele would be mafia guys, well-dressed Italian businessmen type fellows and stuff like that. His name was George Shibley. And at the time, he was charging um, he was charging $250 an hour for his services, which at the time was like astronomical. For whatever reason, he met with Charlie just prior and had a private meeting with him just prior to him being released from prison. That's never really been explained, but it's it's a curiosity. It's one of the sort of sort of unexplained things that's within the case that that makes you go, hang on, there is something more to this than, than meets the eye. The, 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 the mainstream sort of version of this isn't quite accurate, really. So he, he turns up to Hate Ashbury, and, and the reason he's gone there is because of two things, right? One, he's got these potential for music jobs, uh, and two, he knows someone there that's got a brick of weed uh, whose name escapes me, but he basically goes over there and just, again, starts sort of kind of hustling, essentially. And the, his music career, it's a bit, it's a bit strange, like these differing sort of tales of it. Some people say... Uh, in some versions, he, he's not particularly well thought of because his music's not really up, up with the times and stuff like that. And in other versions, he did get a series of jobs. Um, um, in, in other versions, he's so good that the Beach Boys are interested in him, which we'll come on to in a bit. 
um, and um, and he claims that, for example, he wrote certain songs that were sold stolen by Neil Diamond and uh, uh, and various other people um, of the Beach Boys. He, he, at one point, was rubbing shoulders with people like Jimi Hendrix and Elvis and uh, uh, and people like that. But we'll, we'll come on to that uh, in a bit. Um, but um, but yeah, so he's he, he, he's um, all. It, this is the thing. Um, it, there's differing uh, t- stories about his music. The one that's, that's told in Manson in his own words, uh, which isn't uh, it, it isn't a particularly accurate book, but he said that what he would do is he'd pass around a jug and say when he's on stage, basically, I've got a friend outside, and basically if it, we've got two choices. Everyone either puts some money in the jug now, and we get like you know uh, appreciated and paid for playing, or we rob you of everything when you leave. So you know he he wasn't averse to sort of throwing his weight around and stuff like that. And the other interesting thing was that basically he's, he's supposed to be on parole right when he when he's he's been released um in uh, the the late 60s um and he's floating around hey ashbury and etc he's supposed to do two things get gainful employment and get a permanent address and he does neither of these things instead what he does is he somehow manages to get hold of a, uh, through a series of exchanges he gets hold of a, a volkswagen minibus microbus and paints it black um, the first person he met was was uh, Mary Bruner, so he, he basically starts meeting certain people, and then the second person that he met was was Squeaky From, uh, Rose Squeaky From, I believe. Now this is where again all sorts of stories are told. You know the Marilyn Manson uh, uh, track, uh, Cake and Sodomy, right? Um, it starts with the the, the mantra. Are you sorry? Are we allowed to swear? Um, absolutely. Um, please right. continue. Okay, I am the god of fuck. Right. Okay, which is like, and where that comes from is that for years and years and years was purported to be what um, Charlie said to Squeaky when he when he first met her, when he, he just saw her in the street and decided to to go up to her and uh, he introduced himself as the god of fuck. If you actually listen to him and Squeaky, what he actually said was, "Hi, how are you doing?" But this this is kind of the point. I know it sounds like a minor thing, but this is one of the things about the story is that so many things have been sort of massively blown out of proportion or sort of like hyped up to make it sound a lot sexier than it is or a lot um, a lot more sort of bizarre than it is. And to be quite honest, it doesn't really need that at all uh, because there's enough weirdness and enough sort of like, you know, celebrities and organised crime and murder, for Christ's sake, like uh, without sort of having to get into the sort of ideas of it being connected to like mind control or satanic cults or anything right. like that. Well, this is so interesting, too, because I think for a lot of people, they may not know that there's a lot of um, what you would think are artists or celebrity types that are in Hollywood now, but are actually very prolific drug dealers. Yeah. Um, You you know, uh, Brandy's, uh, the singer Brandy, her brother, well, who was connected to Whitney Houston towards the end, was a prolific drug dealer. Uh, Corey Feldman, I know that personally. That's probably not even publicized. But yeah, he, really? he would routinely do Molly parties at his house in Reseda. So, Fair. you know, this this has been going on for a long time, uh, you know, just before recently. Um, you know, it's, it's nothing new, but it's new for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, basically, you know, celebrities are just like everybody else. They like to do drugs, basically. So it, <laughs> they got to work, too. You know, well, that's they're not in, in between shows, right? In between movies. Yeah. yeah. But don't be all oh, Christ. Sometimes if it wasn't for the drugs, you wouldn't be able to. Like, but, <laughs> but, um, but basically, he then kind of he's he sort of floating around a bit, and he starts sort of meeting more and more people. I think the next person they met was was Ruth Ann Morehouse, um, and basically this was a little bit sketchy because basically well it was totally sketchy because she was very very young this girl incredibly young and he sort of ingratiated himself with the family and this is where he got the, the, the microbus from i think he exchanged it for a piano if my recollection is is correct but then basically what happened was this ruth ann she ran off with him declared that she was in love with him and um the father dean morehouse 
wasn't particularly happy about his you know teen daughter running off with this 33 year old um <laughs> uh, like ex-con like can you believe um and and so he sort of chased them down to try and um uh, and, and to get hold of them and apparently at this point uh, charlie introduced him to, to lsd and at this point they all became much much sort of happy with the whole situation Char charlie himself apparently like LSD is sort of like quite important in the story because it's claimed that he used it to sort of manipulate people and brainwash people and stuff like that, which I think I think there's elements of truth to that, but I don't think it's quite the way that it was um, sort of, it's portrayed, say in the Helter Skelter book, for example. They did do acid, they did do various things, but um, but it's, it, a lot of the stories like them doing rituals where Charlie wouldn't take acid and they'd be crucified and they'd all have to worship him as Jesus and then worship him as the devil and stuff like that. that didn't really happen by, by the by the looks of it basically that right was and, and so so he's he's in Haight ashbury which i find very very interesting because towards the end of the 60s i would say mid 60s towards the end you see lsd coming into the consciousness of young americans provided mm -hmm. by the central intelligence agency and they they start spreading it through probably the universities over there in the bay area Haight ashbury yeah. and which was also the epicenter years later well, for the recruitment of Jim Jones, who was working for the homing home urban department, uh, HUD, connected to the government, who kind of ran a similar mine experiment years later in Ghana huh. with the Jonestown event. So you see Haight-Ashbury is almost just as important as Laurel Canyon, which is going to come down um, no, later absolutely. in the story. Well, I mean, Haight-Ashbury um, is essentially where everything started. It's the epicenter. It's where the sort of like the... Um, Oh, I can't remember what it's bloody called. The, the, the sort of new age movement, the, the CIA is all over that, basically. I forget the, the exact terminology for it, but all this sort of like, you know, free your mind, sort of sit there and meditate and stuff like that. And, and uh, you've got people like Jolly West down there who are studying the hippie in their natural environment. And then, you know, all the people who are manufacturing the LSD, like Owsley Stanley and stuff like that, have got intimate connections to the CIA. Timothy Leary. Yeah, got, Leary all these people. Brotherhood of uh, Eternal Love and all, all the, these people. Like, <laughs> Eternal you know, Love. Yeah, they're essentially on record saying that these are CIA agents, CIA operatives are part of CIA operations. So, yeah, there, there was a huge amount going off. However, and, and people might know me from us, you know that like MKUltra and Microtrol is my other sort of pet, like um, passion, basically, that I'm really interested in. But, and I thought for a long time that the Charles Manson case was a Microtrol uh, slash satanic or occult um cults type situation connected to the church of prostitution the final judgment and basically had cia's fingertips all over it um and until i started researching the book that's what i thought and it wasn't until i was halfway through writing the book that i realized oh that's not it at all i don't and and i don't think that charles manson was under any type of mind control i don't think that charles manson's uh, followers were under any type of mind control i don't think they were part of mk ultra or project chaos or anything like that i don't think that they were there to demonize the hippies i think that he was just a drug dealer that had connections to certain organized crime and but then after the fact once the murders have been connect, uh, um, committed the idea that that this was sort of indicative of hippies and that that, this, that charles manson was was beloved by the hippies actually came from the weather underground and, and bernadine van doren who basically said uh, she she turned it into a political act when it was nothing but a drug murder essentially she was the person that turned it into a sort of politicized really? thing and okay it's, it's so what's your name again now I, I don't mean to interrupt you um oh, so what was her name again? okay yeah bernadine van doren who's the yeah, head of the, the weather underground which are kind of what you would call maybe antifa today if i had to try to um 
regulated or and, and because I've talked about Susan Rosenberg, who was head of you know the, the Weather Underground back then, who's also now leading the BLM here in the United States. Mm-hmm. So you have a lot of these influences and it really coming from the Bay Area, Haight Ashbury. Um, it could be a case of communists infiltrating intelligence agencies and vice versa. There's so much infiltration, you know. Personally, I think, think it was the other way around because the, the two things that the, the Weather Underground Interesting. Actually, actually did was they, they smeared the Black Panthers who wanted absolutely nothing to do with them. And they, destroyed, and they destroyed the SDS, you know, the student, um, the student movement, which the Weather Underground came out of. So it's almost like they infiltrated and neutralized those two things or attempted to neutralize. Interesting. I, I've, I've never heard that before. And, and, and also there's an influence with the district attorney as well. I remember the DA getting involved. Oh, Vincent uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, who, who, yeah, who's connected to the Beach Boys here? So there's a big connection. We're about to find out. Well, and yeah, yeah go ahead, Neil. Well, Charlie's battling around with these. Like, I think he, at this point he's got three girls in a van, and he's rolling around with them. And sometimes Dean's following him, and sometimes other people are following him. But at some point, he upgrades to a bigger van, and um, basically, like, he gets a couple of sort of really big. Um, breaks so to speak the first is he gets introduced to gary stromberg of universal studios right okay and he's basically offered parts in films and helping out with writing a screenplay about jesus coming back to earth and stuff like that so he's getting incredible access to people and it's suggested at this point there's certain letters that charlie wrote later in his career that suggested that he had um sexual liaisons with uh, a couple of people that, that people might be aware of the first one whose name escapes me uh, was the the actor who was the lead in the tv series wild wild west um but apparently a bit of a heartthrob in his day and apparently him and charlie had a bit of a sexual tryst and also it suggested that another person that he might have slept with at this time was none other than the columbo actor peter falk um whether these wait, things a minute, are... <laughs> wait a second you're telling me he had a choice with Charles Gardner from Wild Wild West and Peter Falk. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, this is okay. basically what um, uh, was was it? That doesn't sound right. Um, the uh, um, that doesn't quite sound right for the Wild Wild West uh, TV uh, guy. I can't remember his name. But anyway, he was the, he was the, the handsome young one from it, basically. Okay, okay. Is it Wild Wild West or Bonanza or Hawaii Five O? Robert Conrad. Who, who played Captain James something. That was it, Captain... James yeah. Gardner. Maybe it's James Gardner? Okay. Well, it was Robert Conrad was, was the person, oh. um, was the actor that you apparently... Then he's, uh, but I, I don't know what else. Oh, okay. You're thinking, you're thinking of Gunsmoke, probably. I think it's Gunsmoke. Okay. The point being that basically you've got access to these sort of celebrities and uh, and also sort of into sort of like kind of really impressive jobs as uh, as well, like, you know, like he's knocking about with, with celebrities. Now, there's a later suggestion that he's basically there because he's also selling drugs and he happens to have all these girls around and stuff like that as well. So, like, because there's, there's people like later in the story, so Cary Grant, so Cary Grant was supposed to be at the Tate House to buy LSD. Uh, but was in the garden with a rent boy, uh, heard the screams of people being murdered inside and so ran off. And this is this is according to, to Cary Grant's manager. Um, one of the people that apparently Charlie was selling coke to um, uh, whenever he had sort of large quantities of, of coke on him was um, uh, Dean Martin, apparently, the, of the Rat Pack fame. And that, that's quite interesting because like, obviously the Rat Pack and the, the Camelot crowd, Sinatra and all that lot, Basically, they're sort of quasi-connected in as much as basically they were very in with the mafia at the same time. Like Sinatra was basically like the Fischetti brothers and uh, and various other sort of uh, mafia. There's Sam Giancana uh, and um, the other guy whose name escapes me at the minute. Um, he was he was sort of in their pocket essentially. You know the story of like you're giving them off and you can't refuse in, in the, the Godfather. 
that was yeah. about Sinatra essentially. There was a big band leader that Sinatra was sort of signed to, and um, jo- interesting. Oh, I think it was Johnny Rosselli, um, who's also been accused of possibly being one of the gunmen in the um, uh, JFK. No kidding. That's interesting because uh, Sinatra is also connected to Jackie Gleason, who's connected to the mafia at that time, mm-hmm. which is reportedly. It was Gleason that made the hit order on Jim Morrison just oh, yeah. several years later in 71 because Morrison was said to have been uh, paid and asked to perform at Gleason's daughter's 16th uh, birthday, Sweet 16, where if you recall, Morrison was in his worst state, you know, the big beard, drinking. He exposed himself to the daughter of Gleason and, and all her friends. That's when Gleason called Sinatra and said, take him out. Wow. I know Sinatra's... Uh- uh, threatened to uh, uh, break Woody Allen's legs uh, for, for Mia Farrow uh, at one point as well. Uh, oh, but, really? Uh, yeah, yeah. But it also basically he, this is this is the thing. Certainly, like he um, he divorced her on the set of uh, of um, uh, Rosemary's Baby because he didn't like her short hair. <laughs> uh, so and, no. and, uh, yeah, it's a bit of a bit of a strange one. He was basically also forced by the, the mafia to transport huge amounts of money to their illegal gambling uh, to their their casinos in um, um, in Cuba. Um, for for the sort of mafia get together conference there just before the overthrow of Batista, so yeah, so Sinatra was in it up to his his neck basically, but but this is the point. Like um, Charlie's making all sorts of friends, like as well. Like it bumps into, um, for example, and this has been confirmed by Michael Caine himself. He, Michael Caine was at a party at Elvis Presley's house, and he was introduced to Charles Manson by Mama Cass. So weirdly, Charlie's rubbing shoulders with all these different people. He's friends with the mamas and the papas, knocking around with um, Hendrix. He bumps into um, uh, Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys and is essentially invited to go and live with Dennis Wilson. Because Dennis Wilson's just got divorced at this point. Or, um, yeah, he's just got divorced. And so he's like, basically, I'm, I'm a bit depressed. And Charles, like, Charlie's like, well, I've got loads of drugs and loads of young girls that will probably sleep with you just at the drop of a hat. Are you interested in any of that? And Dennis likes that sort of stuff. So, you know, he, he decided that, yeah, why not? So basically they moved in. There is a suggestion as well that basically Dennis and Charlie were actually lovers as well. Um, now, what's certainly true is that basically as this group got sort of bigger and bigger and started incorporating um, a few more sort of girls like Brenda and Sandra Good and um, uh, and Patty and uh, people like that. And then lads like Little Paul and um, Bruce Davis and Brooks Poston would, uh, would get involved. And this is why they moved on to the bigger bus. Uh, and Susan Atkins would, would would turn up and stuff like that. It'd also be people like that were hangers on like um, Deirdre um, uh, Lansbury um, and uh, Tom or Tim Lansbury. Or the, Angela Lansbury's kids were floating around with the Manson family. In fact, Angela Lansbury, because Deirdre was 14 at the time, um, I believe uh, she was also addicted to heroin, but basically Angela Lansbury wrote a letter signed by Angela Lansbury says that she gave full permission for her teenage daughter to travel around in a bus with Mr. Manson and his ministries because because the, the, the thing was they were telling people that, that this was like a religious thing basically so um so yeah lots of different sort of celebs um and then when you get to the dentist basically they start getting into music and they they recorded a lot of music they recorded music at um at Brian Wilson's home studio Nobody but but the Beach Boys recorded at Brian Wilson's same studio, and apparently there's hours and hours and hours of, of Manson music that was uh, recorded. And it was he was signed to Brother Records, which is owned by Reprise Records, which is something to do with Frank Sinatra. And essentially, it was starting to look pretty good. The, you know where the concept of like calling the group the family came from? That 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 actually came from the group that they were um, forming um, with uh, what's his name, Doris Day's so Terry Melcher. Terry Melcher 
The first time he saw um, Charlie was at a party that was held at his house in 1967, I believe. And whatever it was, it was a year before he officially claimed to have bumped into him because the story was after sort of the murder started happening and things like that, everyone sort of distanced themselves. And the story was that, oh, Charlie was only very tangentially involved with, with all these people. Now, what was going off was basically there was this thing called the Three uh, Musketeers. Um, so the Golden Penetrators. And that was um, Terry Melcher, um, somebody else whose name escapes me, and uh, Dennis Wilson. And they decided to basically try and screw as many girls as they could um, on the Hollywood scene. And they called themselves the, the Golden Penetrators. And so there was this ongoing party at Mama Cass's house, Terry Melcher's house, or Dennis's house. Like, at some point, there'd be a party at any one of those three. You could turn up any time, and if there was nothing happening at one of them, you'd go to the others. And at one of these parties, Charlie was playing uh, guitar. And how do we know this? Um, well, we know this because in um, Dina Martin, who's Dean Martin's daughter, who was friends with Brenda, who ended up being sort of one of um, uh, Charlie's most loyal followers. Um, she talks about a party that was held at Cielo Drive when Terry Melcher lived there, uh, that um, Charlie played guitar at, and Dina Martin ended up complaining about the, the, the pot smoke in the air, and the girls teased her, and so she left, and that was the last time she had anything to do with them. But also at the party was Nancy Sinatra uh, and Jane Fonda. So, you know, again, there's, there's a lot of these these people basically floating around that are very, very sort of influential. And um, Charles, the, the Manson family sort of moved around to various places. At one point, they're, they're basically the spiral staircase. At one point, they're a, a building that's called the Yellow Submarine. And then eventually they move out to um, this ex-movie ranch called the Spahn Ranch. And it's run by a sort of old blind bloke called George Spahn. And basically, they just sort of put squeaky on him and said, like, do anything and everything for this lad. And then they, they actually uh, lived, lived at the ranch. Now, um, the common sort of retelling of this is that basically they were just there and took advantage of this bloke. This isn't true. They, they dressed like ranch hands. They worked. They basically turned the ranch around. They were. This is the strange thing about Charles Manson. Although he was a drug dealer and a pimp and um, involved with some incredibly shady stuff that led to people being murdered. He was probably the only person that gave some of these kids a fair whack because the sort of one thing that was going that was common throughout the stories of or the backstories of all these uh, these kids particularly the girls is that they've been sort of kicked out by the parents or like they're ignored by the parents like squeaky tells a horrific story that basically one day a dad just decided to just not not acknowledge her existence anymore and just so stop talking to her and stopped like interacting with her at all basically and like and these were bright kids a lot of these like like squeaky's dad was like a rocket scientist and stuff like that and but there was there was this this was the stories all along the the, the way now you could make the argument and it, it's a fair argument that well you know he's just picking on or he's he's targeting vulnerable or damaged people isn't he he's going for that sort of person that he can provide that sort of right. father figure for and there's there's probably an element of truth to that but it, but at the same time he was literally the only person that ever was was ever nice to any of these people which is why so many people sort of followed him with such um you know diligence basically right and he was probably making a great profit over there in uh between haight ashbury and laurel canyon plus he probably has mules coming uh, up and down the southern border over there in california mm -hmm. so he's making a name for himself he has the influence he probably has some good tunes now he's getting uh, credentials because he's hanging out with dennis wilson mm -hmm. who uh, maybe people don't know, but there was three brothers in the Beach Boys. You had Brian Wilson, who was the 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 uh, oldest and the genius. You had uh, you had Carl oh. Wilson, who who played guitar, did the vocals. Then you had Dennis Wilson, who was the drummer, who was the wild man, so wild he actually wound up. I, I don't know if he married or dated uh, Mike Love's daughter. 
later on in the seventies, <laughs> which yeah. you know, that's their cousin, that's their cousin, which caused a rift. Mm -hmm. So, but that was what the, 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 uh, climate, the environment was in Hollywood Hills at that time, uh, in the lead up to 1968, the who's who you had Carrie Fisher, excuse me, Carrie Grant, probably Carrie Fisher too, but Carrie Grant, who was, you know, who, who was doing the Liberace thing and Rock Hudson with, with, uh, you know, little young male escorts swimming in the <laughs> Hollywood Hills pool. Yeah. And so this was really the, the perfect, um, formula for what we're about to hear. And not to mention Jack Nicholson, who was the king of the Playboy Mansion with, um, Warren Beatty, which we know has underground tunnels. They had their own access. So this was the environment. So pick it up from there, uh, Neil, if you would. Uh, where were we? So, so basically, yeah, so it's going all right for them. And basically, things started going wrong, really, when two people got involved. Um, uh, Bobby Boslay, but it's not really his fault. And um, uh, Tex Watson. And, and like, Tex Watson is always sort of billed as like, uh, like Charlie's right-hand man or his lieutenant or whatever. And like it's, that's just not the, the way that it, it, it was really basically tex was a, was already a drug dealer in in hollywood and he got ripped off by his girlfriend um and so basically he'd gone back and begged to stay at the outskirts of the ranch and and stuff like this like what where did it all start to go wrong it started to go wrong really with um with tex what happened was tex decided that he wanted to rip off uh, a bloke called bernard crow or lots of popper who's a big um, a black guy um, who some people mistakenly thought was a black panther um, that was selling drugs in in around the LA area and so what he did was he said right give us the weed lots of papa I'll nip out to the car and get the money and he nipped out to the car and he just boggled off but what he did was he left his ex-girlfriend there as collateral and he didn't really care because his ex-girlfriend had ripped him off uh, with some uh, money basically now Texas real name is Charles so Somehow, lots of Papa gets into his head that he's staying at the ranch and he phones up and says, I want to speak to Charles. Charles has got my money. And so, obviously, it's passed to Charlie. And Charlie's like, Who's this? What's going off? There's a girl there that's been right. Okay, fair enough. So, they get this gun, which is it's a 22 bullet line, right? And it's this this gun's got a really weird sort of history. Basically, it used to belong to no, none other than President Ronald Reagan. Now, now, what happened with this gun was um, it was a prop when Reagan was an actor. Uh, and do cowboy films and it was given to his stuntman randy star randy star then basically went to work at spark ranch and he gave the the gun to charlie and it's a it's a sort of two two but it's basically a prop it's not a real gun and he takes that and uh and a bayonet and he tries desperately to get loads of people to to come with him um and at this point there's a couple of bikers on the ranch as well there's a bloke called danny DiCarlo, who's a um a straight satan uh, and who's got got real some serious weapons and stuff like that there uh, and nobody will go with Charlie except for a, a person called TJ the Terrible. Now, TJ the Terrible, the reason he was called TJ the Terrible was because he was so soft and nice. It's like it's like an ironic nickname. So although the concept is that Charlie is this sort of cult leader and, and stuff, uh, nobody will go with him. So what sort of a cult leader can't get anyone to, to help him out? Anyway, he turns up and a tussle happens and he accidentally ends up shooting lots of popper in the stomach and he thinks that that he's killed them so they, they go back to the ranch and they start to get more bikers and more weapons involved and the other thing that they're doing is they're they're stealing volkswagens and porsches and they're stripping them down and they're turning them into um dune buggies to to sell parts but also so that they've got like all these these armies of dune buggies and this is something that nobody else has really ever speculated on but what's a dune buggy really good for really good for going over the desert terrain isn't it like 
what what's just south of, of LA if you sort of go over the desert? It's Mexico, isn't it? What's in Mexico? A shit ton of drugs. So I always speculated that the reason that they were making people so many uh, dune buggies was that they were doing trips across the border to pick stuff up because dune buggies can go with places where cop cars just can't go, basically. So I mean, that's it's, it's yeah. a it's, no, that's true. It's I would also um, I would also equate you know, the power of influence and the amount of it that Charles Manson had is probably, you know, we talked about this before is his, you know, he was selling to the stars. Mm -hmm. He probably had enough dirt on A-listers that they would let him in their parties. They would say, here, hang out with my daughter, because if you would have said that, oh, Dean Martin's buying cocaine, you know, back in 1967, nobody would have believed you. You're like, what? Well, exactly. But, well, so he, said, he said that he saw a film with, um, um, now here's the thing. It looks like the Manson family with the help of possibly people from um uh universal or whatever possibly the mafia possibly even dennis wilson and stuff like that because it just transpires that um oh, i forget his name at the minute but the the um the beach boys mafia just so happens to be uh, uh the manager just so happens to be in the mafia as well so um and his, his name will come back to me but at one point uh, charlie and him get into a sort of shouting match over dennis essentially but it looks like the manson family were making porno films as well basically because and again you can't do that without a huge amount of hollywood equipment essentially um and this seems to be tied to the celebrity sex films that were found at the tate house uh, including there was a video of yule brinner and um, peter sellers in a homosexual tryst there was uh, warren Beatty and mama cass um there was sharon with um a, a young black man which was would have been quite sort of taboo at the time um and there were there were various other ones basically that, but Again, it would appear that there was a lot of drugs and, and free-for-all sex involving sort of homosexual oh, sex. And, and, uh, incredible, you know, incredible. And I think it was even mentioned that he was selling to the Beatles secretly. I don't know about uh, that. Len Lennon but, and McCartney um, got their first acid trip or, or hands on it, or George Harrison did. And he's selling to the stars. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't know about that particularly, but but it's plausible. I mean, again, he's, he's knocking around. Um, he claims to, to sort of been friends with Elvis. He certainly was at Elvis's house um, and knocking around with some, some say, very, very sort of high-level um, people. Now, the problem is, essentially, that, well, two things happen. One, people find out that lots of papa has been shot. And so they they start to sort of back off on, on the project. So that's where this, um, that's where the, the, the name came from, the, the family. The family was the name of the group. It was going to be Charlie Manson and the Family Jams, and that was the group project that uh, Terry Melcher um, and um, various people that were connected to the Beach Boys were were trying to sort of arrange with with Charlie. So that's where the concept of the family comes from, basically. So they they start because they're worried about basically everybody knows that they've killed lots of Popper, and they mistakenly think that lots of Popper is well, a he's not dead. Uh, so they, so they, they're mistaken about that, and b they think he's a Black Panther, so they think they're going to get a load of sort of shit coming down on them, and so this sort of promotes two things one they get loads and loads of bikers at the ranch loads of straight satans uh, and there's machine guns at the ranch and it's starting to get very sort of you know outlawish down there um and then the, the second thing is that basically this is kind of where the, the concept of helter skelter comes from now I'll, I'll say straight off the bat this is not true this is this the the prosecution and Vincent Bugliosi maintained that the reason that Charlie had got his followers, his cult followers, to kill these rich white people on the Tates and the Labiancas was that basically um, he wanted to start a race war. Now, the idea was that they were going to go into the desert and find this underground cavern 
and basically they were going to live there until they were um, their their number was 144,000. At which point they'd come back out. The race war had been won by the black people, and they'll have killed all the white people. But they won't know how to run society, so they'll be really happy when Charlie turns up because basically he'll be able to um, to run society for them. And that's the concept of helter skelter. And there's several things that are wrong with it, right? One. Why did they stop after just a couple of murders? Because evidently Helter Skelter hadn't started. Why did they start Helter Skelter before they um, uh, found the underground cavern? Because they evidently hadn't found the underground cavern. Like, why, if they really, really wanted to blame both of these crimes on black people, rather than the vague sort of clues of a black panther and some watermelon rhymes in the, in the sink, why not something really, really overt, like an Afro comb or a Black Panther manual? Or alternatively, you could just phone up the police and go, you'll never know what, you never guess what I've seen. Two black guys running away from the Tate House. Like, do you know what I mean? There's right. lots of ways that you can impress that. Right. You would, think, you would think there would be more fingerprints. And also to know, uh, just for people listening, Helter Skelter was also a Beatles song written by Paul McCartney in 1968 for the White Album. Yeah. So th there's a lot of connotation to that incredible song, which I found interesting. Paul McCartney, <clears throat> Sir Paul McCartney, didn't really ever play live until I believe Charles Manson died a number of years ago. Yeah, he has played it. Now. I think he played it at Glastonbury. Um, I'm sure we saw him do it at Glastonbury like a couple of years ago. But here's the thing: Do you want to know what Alter Skelton was um, in 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 yeah. reality? It was a gambling club at Spa Ranch. Like, have you ever seen that door that says Helter Skelter, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, all good children go to heaven, right on it, that was taken in the devil? Yes. That's the door oh. to the gambling club. That Charlie had started an illegal gambling club on the grounds of um, Spahn Ranch, and he called it Helter Skelter. We know this because the police shut it down and fined George Spahn. So where did this concept of Helter Skelter being like a sort of race war come from? Where, where does all the sort of paraphernalia of cults, including the, the tale of um, crucifixion rituals and stuff like that, it comes from a guy who was at Box Canyon, who was called Krishna Ventner. And Krishna Ventner uh, was a genuine cult leader that basically stole a load of women off the sort of local men, had a sex cult, made people take lots of acid and pretended to be Jesus, including and up to crucifying himself and, and letting his followers sort of worship him. And he was a cult leader for many years in Box Canyon until the husband of one of these wives turned up and decided to blow them all up with, uh, with dynamite. So what the prosecution did was they basically got this concept and, and Krishna Ventner, because it was a doomsday call, he said the same thing. He said that the whites and blacks were going to have a race war, but that him and his followers would be safe because they'd go to the mountains and wait until their followers were 144,000 and then come back and take their places to rightful rulers of the planet. But so basically what Vincent Bugliosi and the prosecution did was they took a book that Paul Watkins had given them, which was the life and times of Krishna Ventner, got all the wacky bits out that Krishna Ventner did and just said that Charlie did them. It's as straightforward as that. So the whole Charles Manson is a cult leader. Charles Manson wanted to help to scale to Charles Manson's race war. Mm -hmm. All of that is completely made up. It was a book called Krishna Ventner that did it. Now, wasn't in that book, weren't they, didn't they have the concept and the term the family? Well? Well, it, oh, they may well have done. There's, there's several groups that actually called themselves the family um, right. that were floating around at right. the time. Um, there, and, is a, there is an essay um, in which Charlie's spoken to. Um, um, and various members of, of the group have spoken to, and they describe themselves as a family, but they don't describe themselves as the family. Um, so th this was actually just, this was this was put onto them by Ed Sanders, no relation, who wrote the book, The Family. Um, 
Now, here's an interesting <laughs> thing, because right. Ed Sanders um, was also the person that suggested the, the, the connection to the Process Church of Final Judgment and that the murders were in some way a satanic ritual and that the Process Church were floating around at the Mansons and made snuff films and all sorts of stuff like that. And uh, interestingly, like, do you know where he, where they, where he got that information from, the information that, that Charlie was actually connected to a church, uh, the, the Process Church, which was a satanic cult? It wasn't, but, that, but you'll never guess right. where Ed Sanders got that information from. He got it from the prosecution. He got it from Vincent Bugliosi. He admitted this. So why are the prosecution not bringing that up in court? I'll tell you why. Um, because it's libelous. And what happened when um, Ed Sanders put the, um, the the family book out was the church of the the, the prosecution final judgment went, hang on, we're not having that, and sued him. So so basically, and successfully sued him. And so what? So what? What's gone off there? Well, first off, the whole point of sort of selling the murders as a as a court thing. If the prosecution could seed into the underground press the idea that basically there's a satanic element or a cult element or an element that is being covered up that's connected to this known group, then basically you've already accepted that there's a cult aspect of it. Like Because if you're a satanic cult, you're already past cult. Now, they needed to sell it as a cult to disguise the fact and put all the Christian event nonsense on it to disguise the fact that it was actually just a grubby little drug murder. Um, and the reason that that the process church of final judgment was involved with this was due to the church of scientology and the british tabloids because what happened was when these murders happened it became clear that bruce davis and charlie were enamored to um, scientology and so uh, the mirror newspaper i believe it was in the uk went to the headquarters for scientology and went so this murderer in the uk he's a he's a scientologist isn't he now, just prior to this, the Process Church of Final Judgment was, a, was an offshoot break-off group from the Church of Scientology. Now, I don't know if you know anything about the Church of Scientology, but if you get on their wrong side, you know, it's very, very, very difficult to get back on their good side. And they'll, they'll um, uh, label you a suppressive person and try and destroy you sometimes. And that's what they were trying to do with the Process Church of Final Judgment. Like, the newspapers went to Scientology and went, so... Scientology, uh, Charles Manson's a Scientologist, say that's interesting. And they went, No, no, he's not a Scientologist. He's involved with this offshoot group called the Process Church of Final Judgment. And you know what's even more interesting? That group is a satanic cult. Now, none of that's true, but this is all real good grist for the mill for sort of building the idea that basically there's some sort of weird satanic cult type stuff going off, basically. So, what actually happened with the murders is a little bit complicated. But what happened was, Bobby Beausoleil had been to his friend Gary Hinman and he bought um, a, a grand's worth of mescaline, which he sold to the straight Satans, right? the, this really scary biker group. And this biker group turned up and said, this, these drugs are bad. We want our money back. And Bobby's like, well, OK, can I have the drugs back? And they said, no. And he's like, well, that put me in a bit of a difficult situation. He says, we don't care what you do. If you don't do it, we're going to kill you. And there's a bloke called Danny DiCarlo who gives him a gun and says, go over to Gary Hinman and either get the, get the drugs, the money, or kill Gary Hinman. And later, Danny DiCarlo became one of the sort of main prosecution witnesses uh, and claimed that the whole Helter Skelter cult thing was real, when in actual fact, he probably should have been charged for accessory uh, to murder or responsibility for the murder of Gary Hinman. Anyway, so they go over to, um, uh, to Gary's house and Gary's like, I ain't got the money. Like, I haven't got the drugs. Like, this is ridiculous. You can't, can't do this. They get into a bit of a tussle and the gun goes off. And Mary, who's over there with them, gets a bit scared. And she phones the ranch and tells Charlie, look, it's all kicking off over here. A gun's just been fired. And so Charlie races over there. In the interim, Bobby and Gary go, you know, what? this is stupid. We're friends. Why are we fighting about this? And they figure it out that basically if you take my Volkswagen, um, you can sell it. And then basically we're all good. Cool. Everyone's happy. 
and, it, and it's just about to sort of finish. At this point, knock on the door, Gary opens it, and Charlie's there with a sword, and he smacks Gary in the face and cuts his ear and cuts his face, because he's under the impression that there's still a gunfight going off and that he's got to save all these people. And he says, you see, that's how you be a man. And then he looks around, realises, oh, no, I've made a terrible mistake. Uh, they discuss it. He gets Gary Hinman's car keys and sods off with, with partial payment. Now, it's all right. Everyone's quite happy. But then all of a sudden, Gary Hinman's like, you know what? I'm not that chuffed. I've just been been stabbed in the face, essentially. And they do try and stitch him up with dental floss, but he's still not particularly happy and he wants to go to the hospital. And they're a bit panicked by this. And so he says, well, he said, you know what? I'm going to cops. I don't care. I don't care about snitching. I'm going to snitch on Charlie. I'm sick of this. I can't believe I got stabbed. Um, so he phoned. So uh, Bobby phones Charlie up and basically says, what should I do? And Charlie doesn't really give him any advice at all. He says, well, you know, do what you feel. You know what you need to do. And he interprets that as being told to to, to kill Gary Hinman. And so he, he does. He goes and stabs him to death um, and um, then leaves. And he makes a really half-hearted attempt at making it look like um, there's a bloody paw print. And he puts Panther Power or something like that in blood on the walls to try and sort of give the impression that this is a, a Black Panther uh, murder. Anyway, Bobby's really sort of traumatised by this. And by this time as well, sort of all the music sort of cooled off because of the, the lots of popper thing and stuff like that. Um, and basically, a couple of days later, Bobby gets arrested. In the meantime, Charlie's actually started off to San Diego with this young Jewish girl called Stephanie Schramm. Um, and he's basically talking about leaving everybody and sodding off with, with her forever. But he goes back to collect his stuff. And when he gets back, he finds out that Bobby's been uh, arrested. And the girls kind of sort of try and persuade him to stay and help them. Um, and so he goes, right, I'm sick of this. Tex, you know, you owe me a favour because because I sorted out that thing with lots of popper. I owe Bobby a favour because I basically caused this problem with Gary Hinman. You know what's easier? You owe Bobby a favour. Brilliant. Sorted. So Tex decides that he needs to go and burglarise or, or rob somebody to get some money to pay for a lawyer for Bobby. That's the only thing he can think to do. Now, a couple of weeks prior to this, a girl called Linda Kasabian had turned up. After stealing 400 tabs of acid from her ex-husband and all his money, she basically turns up with her daughter and immediately gets in with Tex. Tex is, is still trying to be a drug dealer in Hollywood, and he's recently bought from um, uh, Jay Sebring um, and uh, is, is like a cocaine dealer. And uh, him and Arnold uh, Fukowski, um, Wojtek Fukowski, who's living at, at um, Rome Polanski's house, which was where Shantae is, with Gibby Folger, who's Wojtek's uh, girlfriend. They're trying to get into Jay Sebring is the coke dealer for, for like all of, of Hollywood um, when Charlie's not got better stuff. So they're kind of sort of rivals, and he also gets LSD in. And Voitech's got all this this new drug, which is basically like Molly, which is like MDMA, MDA is called. Um, and apparently he sells a grand's worth of it, or I've heard up to four grand's worth of it, to Tex and Linda Kasabian. And it turns out it's crap. And so this is why Tex has decided, right, I know that they've got drugs there. Let's go over and we're going to rob them. And that will give us enough money to pay for Bobby's uh, thing uh, because they ripped him off. Now, in the meantime, basically, because this, this drugs are bad, the, the drug dealer himself, who's a chap called Bobby Doyle, who was actually the boyfriend, the sometime boyfriend of Mama Cass, was lured over to Mama Cass's house. And he was tied to a tree by Wojtek Fukowski and angrily raped whilst it was filmed in front of a baying crowd. And so this is, again, this, the, the sort of thing that, that Wojtek would do to people. He's not a pleasant man. Anyway, they turn up. And Sharon Tate isn't supposed to be there. She's supposed to be at um, uh, her friend Sheila Wells's house. Now, here's where another mafia-connected character comes into it. Robert Evans is also involved in the, the Bill Mensa and Roy Radin murders and all sorts of shady stuff. He apparently was dealing coke for uh, the mafia and connected to the mafia. He's a big-time producer at um, 
in, in Hollywood. Um, and he was supposed to check on Sharon every single day because at the time Roman Polanski was in London trying to get this film called Dare the Dolphin off the ground. And for some reason on that day, he didn't go around and check on um, uh, Sharon. He just phoned her up and she says, oh, I'm not going to be here tonight. I'm going to be at my friend Sheila Wells. Now, this is weird because Sandra Good basically once went up to um, Sharon Tate's sister in court and says, we're so sorry. We didn't know Sharon was there. We phoned ahead and we were told that she wasn't going to be there. So it's just one of the, the sort of strangeness, basically. So they turn up and basically the, the story is that they creep in and they cut the, the, the panel and going through the, the sort of back window. But they don't do that because the, this cut blind has never been entered into evidence like in the original police report it says that they walked in through the front door and they walked in through the front door because they knew each other because they were all friends they all knew each other like they, they hung out in the same group they were buying drugs from one another and, and, and whatnot and um and people like nicholas Shrek, who's, who's done a really great book on manson suggested it was about joel rostow that was supposed to drop off all this cocaine for jc bring etc uh, etc et anyway this drug deal doesn't go down very well tex whips out the guns and knives and, and here's another thing, right? They didn't really take that many weapons. So if they're going to, if they went there to kill people, they had machine guns on the ranch, you know. They could have taken all sorts of stuff, but they didn't. They went to flash knife and rob them, and then it went wrong. Sharon tried to escape, and so she got stabbed. Jay tried to fight, so he got stabbed. Uh, then there's um, Stephen Parent outside. He panics and tries to drive off. Linda Sabian stabs him, and then Tex goes up and finishes him off. At this point, they leave and they go to Jay Sebring's house. Uh, they actually don't. They, they go to the back of Jay Sebring's house, and this is where they get caught by some neighbours, and they claim that they're just trying to get a drink. And then they, they go back to the ranch, and on the way, they dump all their bloody clothing out of the window and throw it down a hill. And basically, when they get back there, they say to Charlie, yeah, we've killed, um, killed a couple of them. And then it's this point that they realise that um, Wojtek and uh, Abigail Folger are still alive, tied up, but still alive. So Charlie gets into the car with them, and they all go back, and they finish the job off. So although Charlie didn't order the murder, he didn't actually murder himself, anyone himself, he was at the very least witness for, for, for two of the murders. So it, it's, it's, it's complicated, basically. Um, a couple of days later, they go to the Labianca's house. Now, this is very, very strange because like, there's all sorts of theories about this. One of the main sort of points is that she had a dress that was put on over the top of her um her nightgown and the way that the, the cars were parked and the gate was left open and stuff like that it looks like she was taken from her home to her boutique shop a dress shop uh, where the safe was emptied um and then she was brought back now there's, there's a number of reasons that this might have gone ahead one quite outlandish theory is that uh, she was actually the lsd plug she was the person that was supposed to provide lsd um, and uh, it, 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 she didn't do it, so that's why Tex was taking revenge. One is that Lino Labianca was in massive amounts of debt to Frankie Carbo, and when Charlie's been questioned on this, he said that I was there to get a little black book. Um, I was there to get a little black book from Lino because he owed Frankie Carbo money. And when asked, do you know, did you actually know Lino? Charlie says, no, I didn't own Lino, but he knew Frankie and I knew Frankie, and that was the connection. Um, there's also a suggestion that potentially um, is to do with uh rosemary labianca's estranged daughter susan struthers whose boyfriend was um also a straight satan and she was friends with tex they used to live they used to live in the same building basically when uh, 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 prior to that it's actually the building that was used for melrose place you know that tv show um that that's where oh, yeah. tex, tex and susan struthers used to, to live there basically as neighbors so so the second night of murders that's very, very confusing as to what the actual sort of motivation 
was for that um, and it's probably going to be a mystery or uh, the very best sort of just sort of speculation well you know, here's what's interesting too because there's reports of within hours after the murder if not the next day uh, of Sharon Tate is you hear about Warren Beatty yeah uh, some other stars might even been Mama Cass for all I know uh, who are now going to that exact house where a terrible nasty murder took place and doing what exactly? Well, it was Jack Nicholson, Robert Evans, and Rudy Altabelli. Rudy Altabelli claimed to be in the mafia as well. <laughs> and uh, so, and he was the owner of the house. There's also a called Sharon Katami who was selling um, hash out of, uh, out of the house as well. And so again, it's all this sort of nexus of drugs and, 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 and gangsters and stuff like that. Um, Jack Nicholson, Robert Evans, and Rudy Altabelli were allowed into the house uh, to clean the house up before the police investigation was completed. And what they were supposed to do was go in there and, uh, if you can believe, wash up the bloodstains. And they didn't because there's that famous picture of Roman Polanski coming back and pig is still written in Sharon Tate's blood on the door. That door was later sort of taken by uh, Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails um, uh, before he, I think he gave it back um, a couple of years ago. But um, but Rudy Altspeller used to, he insisted on never changing the living room carpets because they were covered in Sharon Tate's blood. And it was like a sort of, uh, grim, macabre sort of Americana that he would show to house guests throughout the throughout his life, but but this so so basically what happens is is later so Bobby gets um, arrested and um, well Bobby gets arrested and then Susan gets arrested and she starts blabbing in in prison about um, the murder of Sharon Tate because here's the thing I I suspect if you look at it the police knew what had gone off. Some drug deal's gone off here. It's all gone wrong. We really don't want to touch it, right? Because they did all sorts. They lost the murder weapon, right? They they, they didn't make any connection between the crime scenes. They missed huge amounts of evidence. They they didn't sort of follow up on, on investigations and stuff like that. The lad that found the murder weapon, they told him that they'd lost it until his dad threatened to go to the police, um, at which point they miraculously found it again. Um, and the whole sort of story... Um, for, for what went down with uh, the Tate murder came from a confession from Susan Atkins. And Susan Atkins had basically tried to give this confession to about five or six people in prison and everyone had just told her, oh, sod off, nobody believes you, you're lying. And so she just happened, um, there was two, Ronnie Howard and um, I can't remember off the top of my name the other one, but the other one just so happened to be Frank Sinatra's girlfriend. Anyway, so she tells this story to Frank Sinatra's girlfriend who alerts this other woman, Ronnie Howard, who's a prostitute who's got something like 35 aliases. Uh, so not the sort of person that you normally trust. And they immediately get these two lawyers involved, Paul Costello and I can't remember the other person's name. But again, these are Italian lawyers that, they, that usually would deal with, uh, no, it's Paul Caruso and I can't remember, but it, it's easy to find out. But basically, these usually deal with the mafia. And for some reason, they decide to just stick up for this 18 year old girl that's got absolutely no money and is facing the death penalty for murdering a pregnant star and in in her confession she claims to have licked the blood stabbed the belly of uh, of charity told her you're gonna die bitch and then literally drank the blood of her of her dead victim none of this turned out to be true it was text that did everything uh, but um but susan was doing this to try and be notorious now what was strange was that these two lawyers arranged for the story to be told in a book that was released mm -hmm. and in the los angeles times it was serialized in the los angeles times so before the trial had even happened the majority of los angeles had read this story 
that basically talked about Helter Skelter and Court Leader and how they were ordered to murder Sharon Tate and everyone else that was at Terry Melcher's house because Charles Manson, for two reasons. One, he was jealous of the music industry and the fact that they'd snubbed him for being rubbish, uh, which didn't happen. And two, because he wanted to start Helter Skelter, which we must remember was not a thing that he was involved in. That was Christian event then. Yeah. And so, right. so the thing is that the whole whole thing looks to be pretty fabricated. And poor Leslie Van Housen, just to sort of bring it back right to the beginning, who's up for parole, she wasn't even Charlie's girl, she was Bobby's girl. And she sort of gone along on his second night, not having a clue what, what she was there for. And Tex started stabbing people. And Tex basically told her, you come in here and you stab this woman, otherwise I'm going to kill you. And by the time Leslie Van Houten had actually stabbed uh, Rosemary uh, uh, Bianca, uh, uh, she was dead. And so this poor girl was essentially sort of like bullied into this crime. So, you know, if any of the, 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 that lot are sort of due for parole, uh, Leslie is certainly the one that, that was right. least involved in the crime and is probably the most deserving of, of the case. But, but here's the thing, like, so, so the inference is that the whole, it's just a drug deal that went wrong. That was it. That's vaguely connected somehow to the entertainment industry and, and mafia drug dealing. But the, that couldn't come out in court. So, the, so the, the point is that Vincent Bugliosi manufactured the story of Helter Skelter and the story of a race war and really, really played the cult aspect on it. And he did it in a number of ways. He did it by publishing a book. He did it by getting the, these lawyers to essentially publish the story of the Los Angeles Times. Um, and then he also out stories like the connection to um, the process church which wasn't real and the fact that they were making snuff films which also wasn't true but they were making right. films and he put that out in the alternative press so he, he had a really really clever sort of marketing slash propaganda campaign to the point where most people if you just say Charles Manson don't actually know the ins and outs of the stories they'll just go oh that mass murderer and it's like well even in the sort of Helter Skelter version he doesn't actually kill anyone himself um, so so yeah, and it was well, contradictions in the court case and stuff like that. It's very well. Let, let me um, let me pose a few, just a few notables here because, uh, well, it, well, here's my first question, and I wanted to ask you earlier, but when we talk about the Helter Skelter Casino, which I totally forgot about, mm -hmm. it was that before the song came out or around no, the same time of the um, song. They, what happened was Charlie didn't like the Beatles. He thought that they were like. He says he, he likes being Crosby, and here's the thing: if you listen to Charles Charles Manson's music. Doesn't sound like the Beatles at all. So you know, if he's like such a super fan, he's getting like messages through the music and stuff like that. It was the it was Susan Atkins that liked um, the the Beatles. Now here's another thing, like the the song "Sexy Sadie" and stuff like that. Like Susan Atkins was called Sadie Van Glutz, and various people were given different names and stuff. And that's often inferred that um, that's why you know he's, he's altering their personality. Do you know why Susan Atkins was given the name Sadie uh, May Glutz? Um, because she needed a false identification because she was on parole for pointing a gun at a police officer. That's it. It's as straightforward as that. It's just that she needed a fake ID. So, so yeah, there, there it is. I mean, but you, know, you try to figure it out. It was it, you know, so the casino probably came coincidentally, I guess, as the Helter Skelter song came out. Well, Helter Skelter means they took it that it meant confusion. They thought that that's what the song meant. And so the younger kids, Susan and Paul particularly, they really liked the White Album. Charlie hated the White Album. He said he sounded like punk rock to him. But basically, they really liked it. And so in the same way that like kids use slang and stuff, and like nowadays, mm. for example, in England, everyone calls everyone fam or famalam, and, you know, silly things like that. And, um, you know, or blood or whatever. This like... That's that's what's the word? What's the good word that people say? Oh, that's brilliant nowadays, like tech hot or shit hot or something like that. That was the that's oh, how yeah. they, 
yeah, they say, oh man, that's so helter skelter. Like it's like it's basically yeah. like a wanky way of saying, oh, that's blowing my mind. So, yeah. so calling it interesting. It's just like basically calling it the bomb or something like that. Now, right? now when we talk about uh, the the DA, right? I have to think that he's probably trying to provide cover for big stars who. I've known over time district attorneys are close to even police yeah. chiefs. You know, when you hear Jack Nicholson and others going back to the uh, Tate house just hours later, yeah. probably to retrieve pornography tapes and other blackmail kind of, uh, you know, items. Yeah, and drugs and stuff like that. And they didn't do a very good job because some of the LA detectives found a load of porn tapes and they also found quite a lot of drugs in like JC Brings car. <laughs> found like a sort of like an ounce and a half of weed in the bedroom, et cetera, et cetera. But they, they obviously removed something. So I think they were looking for Jay's stash basically. Uh, but I don't think it was there. I think Texas had already taken it. Right. So, so they're looking for something. And here is where the, the eerie part too is the fact that Roman Polanski, who's, if he's not a Satanist, he sure has a fascination with Satanism in his films, but literally uh -huh. Rosemary's baby just came out around that same time yeah, yeah. as the murders and how identical, how, how art is imitating life is eerie in that little scenario there. Well, it's, it's also, it's filmed in the same place that John Lennon was shot. Like in the, the Dakota, yeah, the Dakota, yeah, wow. absolutely. Uh, do you know what actually happened? This is true. On the night of the Tate murders, Anton Zandor Levey did a um, uh, a magical working uh, in which he tried to curse the entire hippie generation. Uh, you know, well, some might say that it worked. Anton Levey lived in the Laurel Canyon area. Yeah, if I remember correctly, yeah, and his yeah, neighbor yeah. was. Oh God, he was connected to the who's who of, of musicians over there. Kenneth and he had, yeah, yeah, Kenneth Anger. Uh, it, it will come back to me who he was connected to. There, there's a Trent Reznor uh, connection somewhere down the line. Oh but, yeah, uh, I mean Marilyn Manson was in there. The Trent Reznor that I did the Downward Spiral at, at Seattle Drive and recorded Marilyn Manson's first album there. Marilyn Manson's an ordained minister of the Church of Satan. Nick Schreck, who is uh, sort of probably one of the sort of foremost experts on uh, Charles Manson, he's married to right. uh, um, to, uh, to Samuel Levay, Anton Levay's daughter, uh, Zena Levay, um, who people sometimes think is a clone of uh, Taylor Swift. <laughs> but <eventually. laughs> um, and but, it, yeah. In Laurel Canyon, I don't know if you've been, I, I, I used to live around that area. I dated a girl oh, yeah. who lived literally in Laurel Canyon. And it is technically, it's still the same as Hollywood Hills. It's all connected. It's yeah. very, um, yeah, it's very, it's very hilly. It's very, there's a lot of hidden areas. You have Jared Leto yeah. who, who, who lives at the top and has some kind of weird building there. It's all connected. He's got uh, a lookout building. The lookout building was like, yeah, a, yeah, yeah. He's doing sort of CAI experiments and mind control experiments and stuff like that. Um, right. He's now, I don't think he's not anymore, obviously, but the building where the facility was, he, he now lives there, basically. So. Yeah, then, so it's uh, it's all connected. And, you know, there, there's underground tunnels that uh, connected to Playboy Mansion, connected to Warren Beatty's house, uh, James Caan, yeah. the Gettys. I mean, old bootlegger tunnels from like the 20s, you know, that, that, that existed back then. So this is a quite fascinating intertwine of a story where I can only imagine, Neil, that Charles Manson was probably maybe pro uh, promised protection if he went along with this and they'll get him out at X amount of time by the district attorney who well, hated the beach, was a Beach Boys guy. Uh, well, kind of. Nick something was, was the, it, I nearly came back to me the name of the Beach Boys manager. Anyway, uh, Charles Manson is very, very candid in these the, in a lot of interviews. He's basically said, I think he's the one with Michelle Van Horen. He says, Vincent Bugliosi came to me from Geneva offering me sunshine if I'd only roll on blah, blah, blah. The long and short of it is he was basically offered like a shorter term 
if you rolled on tex and he refused to he, he's not a grass he's not a snitch he won't roll anybody so basically what that inference is that vincent bugliosi gave to me offered me sunshine from geneva the inference is that vincent bugliosi came to him and said look the genovese family have said x y and z blah 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 if you just do this you'll be cool but basically, Charlie, it, again, it depends on who you, you you speak to. Some people would say, well, it's obvious that he's just basically kind of done that on the sly. And he's probably perfectly happy in prison because he always had drugs. He always had access to sex. He would have, he, he's, he's, a, he's a legend in prison. It, it really isn't he? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, um, uh, and so th there's arguments that basically, like, he's perfectly happy to do that. Um, it, it's, it's. Yeah, it's, it's a strange one. There's, there's also, uh, in the Michelle Ben-Horion interview, he says, look, I'll tell you exactly what happened. And he goes on this long rant about how basically this happened. When He says, when the whore got on the stand and started lying about Lucky Luciano, that's how they did me, because Al Pacino and Rambo have got to come to Hollywood and make all these movies. <laughs> and, so, and that sounds nonsensical, but what he's saying there is Linda Kasabian got on the stand and lied. Okay, she basically lied and did exactly what the uh, prosecutor asked her to, because the original witness for the prosecution was Susan Atkins, who, by the way, never mentioned Helter Skelter uh, uh, in her grand jury appearances. And then basically she decided she didn't want to do that. So they got Linda Kasabian in, who had previously been uh, up for the, the death penalty. And so he's saying in the same way that they got a prostitute to lie about Lucky Luciani to get him to jail. That's what they did with him. And the inference from Lampro and Al Pacino is Italian actors who are in the pocket of the of the mob that uh, basically he's saying that all of these films wouldn't be able to be made without the mafia. And so this is the cover-up, essentially. That's the cover-up of the Manson case. It's so that to not pull on too many threads, because essentially sooner or later you're going to say, well, who's providing all these celebrities with the drugs? And at that point... right. You right. see only the mafia and also the mafia yeah. were using these, these allegedly were using these film studios to launder money um and particularly drug money and then if you really want to get into it you've got all sorts of, of complicated stuff like well wasn't it also the cia bringing in the drugs yes wasn't there a sort of mafia cuba thing going on yes so it gets it depends how far you want to sort of <laughs> it, it's so fascinating. And I think the moral of the story, Neil, is had the Beach Boys just allowed Manson in their band, we could have prevented this whole thing from Potentially, yeah. Well, yeah, they just, you know, had another guitarist. But, uh, Neil, you are so fascinating in this particular story, in this incredible book. Uh, if you haven't got it and you haven't heard about it, you can get it now still at your uh, on Amazon. Uh, you can also get it, I'm sure, on uh, Neil's websites. I'll try to I'll provide a link on uh, realdealmedia.tv, but it is now is the only time that is real. It fascinated me just a few years ago when I first found out about it, and it's still fascinating today as we really have another look about history, even in the modern times, of what really happened. But, um, uh, Neil, kind of final, uh, final thoughts here, and also you can check out his podcast too, Some Dare Call It Conspiracy, but uh, some final thoughts and also best way to follow your work uh, well as i said my website is neilsandersmindcontrol.com or i'm on twitter or I'm on facebook or you can uh, listen go on spotify and listen to we've done quite a few um, episodes of uh, the, the the podcast we go into real deep dives for conspiracy theories and find out what their origin was where they started you know uh, whether they hold water or, or not and uh, and you know we've examined some of the sort of real big ones as well like things like bohemian grove uh find out exactly what went on there and and, and stuff like that what went on with hunter Biden's laptop what went on with jeffrey epstein did he kill himself and uh you know uh, they, we go properly hard with this like really really no stone unturned um what's gonna happen with leslie van housing as well we've like 
I think she deserves to be paroled. I'll be astonished if she is, because I don't think any politician wants to be associated with freeing members of the Manson family. Uh, I, know, I know some have been released, like Clem was released a while ago, but I don't know. I, I, I think people would uh, balk at it, basically. That's a good point. It wouldn't be bad PR. Uh, Neil Sanders, thank you so much for being here tonight on Late Night Thoughts. Uh, I would love to have you back on. Uh, no, anytime, thoughts, uh, Absolutely pleasure, mate. Like, yeah, anytime. Different topics, everybody. So you can follow Neil, and I'll have links to his work, his incredible amount and body work, and his new uh, incredible podcast, Some Dare Call It Conspiracy with Neil Sanders. Neil Sanders, thank you very much.